0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of CXCast. This is part two of two with Jaap Welms, who is a CX expert from the Netherlands. This week, Maxi Schmidt, my colleague, who is back with us again, and I are talking to Yap about how to scale and manage an NPS program.
1: So yeah, you went from establishing a national Net Promoter Score program to leading an established program across many countries. And you've also advised international clients. Can you tell the audience a bit about your experiences in scaling a Net Promoter Score program across regions and lines of business as it gets more complex? What are your recommendations or experiences?
2: My recommendation would surely be to at least take an 80-20 rule. If you're going to have a centralized program, which I'm in favor of because you want to capture all the best practices and then make them available for everyone, but you have to take into account the local culture, the local influence. You have to take into account the thought leaders that are present there, maybe not the ones immediately connected to that program, but just within the whole company, invite all the stakeholders to co-create it with you. So that's the 80-20 rule. Otherwise, you are going to fill. You are going to put the group picture and raining from the ivory tower, you're not going to make it land in an organization.
1: So I'm sure the audience is wondering what are one or two things that in a Net Promoter Score program that should be what the the kind of centralized activities versus uh, decentralized activities. What are some of the things that you would put at the global or central level versus put the responsibility in local hands?
2: Decentralized bits. I would definitely have the framework in place. What is MPS? And this includes the whole storyline, the whole narrative, the way you are going to approach it. If you're going to leave it to the countries, you're going to get 20 different takes on why we're doing MPS. Mm -hmm. And I think for for a central program, it's absolutely vital to have that compelling story. Why are we doing this? Mm -hmm. With all the inspiration bits, with all the visuals, uh, That can accompany it. Uh, And for instance, uh, the dashboard that you're using for your technology, I think that should be centralized. The way it is then brought forward in a country is uh, relying heavily on the people that are available in your program and the culture. Because in Poland, you really need to take a different approach than Spain, than uh, Turkey, and, uh, and Japan.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. I like that too, that if you have the overarching why, and you have a centralization of the program, we do NPS, we've got you know a way of collecting the data. But then from there, each country is customizing, then they're customizing within a framework that you know, there's some consistency, there's a you know similar survey or similar metric where you're getting the data all integrated across all those regions. But each of those countries can feel like, well, we can take that common approach and tailor it to our needs and have some certainty that they're not going to step too far outside of the bounds either, right? There's sort of a nice balance between we know we can customize it but also we know we're not going to have to figure it all out on our own.
2: You know, I've got great faith in humanity and great faith in the companies that are hiring people. They can execute a process, you know? That's good. However, if you're talking about a compelling story and and really trying to get that upbeat framework and to create that state of mind that you're going to pioneer and that you're going to try something new, which is we're actually going to share experiences with customers and we're going to engage them and we're going to engage you, the employee, that is for a lot of people some way out of their comfort zone. And what I always advise is see who you have. But apart from the execution, anyone can do that. You need to get your hands on someone within a country that is actually getting it, that has got that sparkle in his or her eyes and is willing to go that extra mile. Because only, to my belief, only if you go that extra mile, then you will succeed. And then a compelling story will be brought authentically and with passion instead of being the mission statement number 27 that comes around
1: that month. Yeah, exactly. I was thinking about that, that the the localization of the purpose is also important. Why do we do this in this country? And also, what is it that makes people attracted to, for example, the metrics? Uh, In in the US, as I mentioned earlier, it might be a Super Bowl reference. Um, And in the Netherlands, it might be a little story about Limburg. And in in Germany, that would be Ostfriesland. And that idea of having local people who have the spark and know how to engage employees locally in the program is really important.
2: It is. And to add on that, I don't think it's necessary to look for the right role. I rather look for those people with the spark in their eyes to be leading that program. Even if it's the coffee lady, if she is the one that can tell a fantastic story and gets people to rally behind her... That's okay. That's good. i rather have that with a passionate program as a result than a program which is executed brilliantly, but by a very dull number-driven person.
1: This is such an interesting take on the hire the smile and train the skill. What you're saying is the NPS program lead, right? Hire for the passion and then worry about the rest later.
2: Yes definitely. All the people executing processes, and um, and don't get me wrong, if you're doing a CX program or an MPS program, there are loads and loads of boring stuff you need to do. But there are loads and loads of people who are very capable of doing that. But the ones leading it, the ones igniting that passion, getting people to rally behind them, those are really, really hard to find. And if you find them, you should nurture them. That's
1: really, really good advice for our listeners. Thank you. Uh, Yep, I've been I've been That's a question that I get asked a lot. So I thought I would love to ask you about, um, about what your answer is. And that's uh, the future of surveys. The question is something like, are surveys dead? <laughs> and the future of measurement?
2: Well, let's start with the surveys. As I said, I, I like to turn things uh, uh, on its head. So often when I'm at companies, I am going to talk about... The very first questionnaire ever designed, 1838, it was.
1: 1838, wow.
2: Wow. 180 years ago. (laughs) And, you know, you you build up the story and uh, it's uh, done by the London Statistical Society. And then I get to, to ask the question to the audience, do you want to see it? Because I found it. (laughs) <laughs> wow. And you see the yeah you see the anticipation rising it's really funny and then I show it and there are two physical reactions that follow that First, it's the sense of wonder, and wow, oh, there it is, and immediately followed by a bit of a sense of guilt, and there is some laughter, because in 180 years, nothing has changed. We are still sending out surveys, big, wide surveys, unappealing, with loads of questions that are interesting for the one who is asking them, and not for the respondents, and it's my inbox is still... Filled up with surveys just like that. So, this is a bit of awareness that I then create because then it sets the stage to, to actually come back to the story. Guys, we're talking about a customer dialogue. If you are in a bar, or over dinner, you are not going to talk to someone like you do in a survey. So why would you do that in a survey if your goal is to share experiences, if, if your goal is to start a customer dialogue? So instead of asking for numbers, you can use text. Instead of using a very basic functional white background, use a beautiful photography. For instance, research has shown over and over again that people respond very well to it. And there are a lot of tips and tricks that you can actually get the survey back to what it was supposed to be, an automated form of communication.
1: Yeah, I talk about this as moving from interrogations to conversations. Right, moving from a set yes. of questions that the firm determines that the customer has to make it through in order to yeah. get to the submit button that then nobody does anything with of course to a way that you <laughs> have a dialogue with the customer and I think that technology right now gets us to a point that enables us to have a dialogue with a customer where we had it focused does. a lot on automating feedback collection where we're now going back to why are we actually doing this as you said we're, talking, yeah. we're doing this because we want to talk to a customer we want to elicit feedback we want to open the aperture not try to press them into some kind of scheme or some kind of survey flow and answer scale.
2: Definitely, Maxi. And one thing I usually close off my rant with is how on earth is it possible that we are still making questions mandatory?
1: Mm. Yes. It's, it's, yes.
2: For me, it's ah, thank you. It's beyond belief. <laughs> it's, you're asking the customer. To please share something of his valuable time, which is probably of a low interest to him or her. But still, there is a sense of obligation. There is a sense of loyalty that he or she does it. And they're asking the questions. And then you can't go through to the next screen. How on earth is that possible? And the same thing with open text boxes. You know, I'm typing very well, but I can't do it blind. So I'm looking at my keyboard. That's mm-hmm. a skill I still have to master. I'm giving my I'm giving my feedback in an open text. And after typing away, I look up, and then I see that there was a character limitation. <laughs> uh, uh, and yeah. uh. oh, oh, that makes me so angry. Yeah. We,
0: we want your feedback, but not too much. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes. How dare you? I mean, this is... You're so not thinking of what it is that you're actually trying to achieve. You're trying to open up a customer dialogue. This is not the way to do it because it it doesn't fit into the system. Well, then it doesn't fit into the system. So be it.
0: Well, and, you know, as... as We're in an age when all we talk about are personalizing experiences, you know, understanding your customers and their specific needs and and their emotional reactions to the experience you create. The idea that they should all answer the exact same set of questions, that they all have the exact same set of heuristics or criteria they use to evaluate an experience that they're going to be able to give you feedback on is insane. It completely is detached from everywhere else what companies are trying to do, which is meet customers as they are and and give them the experience they want, except in the survey where then you must tell us about (laughs) every aspect of the experience. Many of which were irrelevant or aren't yep. important to you. Uh, so I, I agree with you. It seems it's where people stop, turn their brains back off about really getting down to a clear and personalized understanding of what the experience should be for the customer, except in the survey where it goes back to yeah. macro it's the same for everybody.
1: But a survey is an experience, yeah, right? Totally. Yeah. Exactly. exactly.
2: And by it, the way, it is. It is, and probably or perhaps that is missing from the definition. A survey is not an add-on. A survey is a full-fledged contact channel, and it should be as branded, as beautiful, as inspiring as all the other stuff that you're trying to achieve through all your other channels.
0: And to that point, I mean, you think about something like the peak-end rule from Kahneman and Tversky, where the end of the experience is one of the big biggest drivers of the memory, the perception of how good or bad that experience was, a survey is almost always an endpoint of an experience, right? It's it's coming very near the end, right? It's one of the last things you do. And here you are appending a new, worse endpoint in many instances with your your long, boring survey to the experience, making it a worse memory for the customer.
2: That is a really interesting point because this is exactly the reason why I'm not trying to have this as an end. My surveys always end up with an open question saying, "Can we help you?" with this issue that they received a survey on or anything else. We would love to be in contact with you and you can just tick the box and the organization will call you no matter for what. So actually, instead of it ending, it is establishing the idea and the concept. We're truly trying to make a connection with you. We're truly trying to make a customer dialogue with Mm
1: -hmm. you. And you know what? I also have a hypothesis why surveys are as bad as they are. And we talked about the fact that people don't think about them as an experience. at the language that people are using. Like with a straight face, they look you in, in the face and say, "And then we're going to have an intercept survey." An <laughs> intercept survey. You are. You're you're interrupting the customer experience and you do this with a straight face and you don't even realize what this is. So anybody out there doing any kind of survey work, look at your language that you're using. Mm. Is this really in line with creating a good experience and creating a feedback dialogue? (laughs) Are you actually talking about interrupting experience interrupters here?
2: (laughs) Yeah, to make that point, I once collected the funniest verbatim and showed it to the board. And it was filled with text like, your company or your survey is like the gates of hell. It's really, really funny comments that just you can't help but laugh even it's very painful. That's a good way to get some extra budget to get
1: things done. This is, I think, very actionable for anybody out there in customer experience.
0: Yeah, and, and I think, uh, Yap, we really appreciate you joining us. Listeners, we're going to post links to some of Maxi and Faith's related research on this topic. But just to summarize, remember why you want this customer feedback in the first place, what the survey is intended, to open up a dialogue as Maxi and Yap have been talking about, to understand what the experience was like. And, and yup, I love your point about where can we next take this relationship? What else do you need help with from us? Or what else on this issue do you need help with from us? Make sure that you're maintaining a dialogue a conversation rather than intercepting and interrupting.
1: Exactly. And make sure that this is not about an NPS fetish, a score fetish. <laughs> this is about why are we doing this program in the first place? The story that you need to have for your employees, a compelling story, but sometimes also silly stories that help them relate to your customer experience program personally.
0: Be Great conversationalist telling stories, not interrupters fetishizing over scores. <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
2: nice.
1: Wonderful. Yeah, thank you so much for making time to join us on the podcast for sharing some of your amazing insights. I love talking to you. I'm, I'm really glad you were here. Looking forward to any audience questions, we'll pass them on to you. So, audience, please let us know if you've right. any questions for Yap specifically.
2: It was joy thank you for the opportunity it was really fun wonderful
0: right back at you up and we'll talk to you all next week on cxcast everybody bye for now listeners if you have feedback or questions about this week's episode please email us at cxcast one word at forester.com and remember your customers perceptions is your customer experience reality